Hey, everybody, that's The Athletic Jingle you just heard, which is a good reminder that this show is brought to you by The Athletic. Do not miss their exclusive in-depth coverage of the unprecedented sports season, the one that is wrapping up, and then the one that is to come with a very small transfer window in the middle. Uh, There's going to be lots of reporting, especially from a soccer standpoint, but obviously there is lots of other coverage of many other sports. So if you sign up to learn more about soccer or to hear more about soccer, you can also hear more about many, many other sports. But then you've got that breaking news that you're not going to get elsewhere. I think Meg Linehan is currently on pace to break a story every I believe 12 hours is about how it works she works hard you can follow her at The Athletic and uh, be up to date with those articles be up to date with your information best of all uh, The Athletic is offering another big discount you can receive 40% off the annual subscription when you go to theathletic.com slash total soccer once again that's 40% off the annual subscription when you go to theathletic.com slash total soccer sports are back and you won't want to miss the breaking stories of your favorite team We hope to see you over at The Athletic. Thank you to The Athletic for sponsoring this show. Now on with this show. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I am Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me today. He is up in Boston. He will be back next week. Uh, for the rest of this week, we have another episode of Allocation Disorder. We also have an interview with Lori Lindsay that breaks down the NWSL semifinals as well as looks ahead to the final this Sunday. For now, I've got the tallest working man in football punditry. It's Mr. Sam Ty. Hello, Sam. How you been, buddy? Uh, I didn't know that I'd grown three inches and overtaking Peter Crouch, but... That is how much is in it. I am just three inches off Peter Crouch. That's how tall I am for those that haven't met me. And it is great to be here with you again, mate. Lovely to speak to you. Lovely to speak to you. Uh, We're going to talk all things Premier League. We're going to start with this, though. Uh, The obvious place. There will not be a Ballon d'Or Award winner this year. Uh, I would still like to ask, if it were happening, how many times would you give it to Christian Pulisic this year? (laughs) Mate, there is not a happier man on this planet that the Ballon d'Or is not going ahead this year. It is (laughs) my least favorite thing about football. Of course. um, Because um, what I have to do every three months is create a Ballon d'Or power ranking, um, which directly pits all of the big names against one another in a ranking from one to ten. It's my opinion. And it gets slammed to the ground spit on and beaten and my mentions for the next two days maybe even up to a week at times is just a complete and utter dumpster fire uh all of the Messi stands versus all of the Ronaldo stands Mm -hmm. versus all of the extra people who think this person or that person and the fact that I get to avoid all of that for the rest of the year is going to do my personal happiness a world of good but if if I had to give it to somebody based on what's happened so far, I would give it to Robert Lewandowski. Uh, all right. You mispronounced Christian Pulisic, but that's fine. Uh, yeah, I think that, that's that's a pretty common one. Uh, Ryan Bailey, whom I know you know, uh, he, he makes the same argument that it should be Robert Lewandowski. Uh, I look forward to all of the many negative uh, tweets for us for even suggesting it not be Messi or Ronaldo. Uh, do you enjoy writing that column or is that like sort of a labor of love that then gets uh, torn apart and uh, angry messages come in? No, I hate all of it. I hate, I, hate, I, hate, I hate every every second. We have a content meeting, and uh, about every three months, we have one of those meetings. Some my boss will say to me, "Hey Sam, I think it's about time for another Ballon d'Or power ranking," and my face just drops, and they can all see it. They all know I hate it. But the problem is, it's what everyone's talking about, and that's part of my mm-hmm. job responsibility, right? right? To, to broach the subjects that everyone's talking about, and obviously, it does very well in terms of in terms of interaction and popularity and reads and stuff. So it's a, it's a bit of a no brainer. But I personally hate it. I hate writing it. I hate uh, conceptualizing it. I hate picking the ten. I hate ranking the ten, and then I hate writing the individual bits because one of the problems, as I'm sure you found with over over the years as well, is that what is left to say about someone like Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo yep. that hasn't already been said. And and I hate writing stuff that doesn't add extra value to things or or add a different or a fresh perspective to things. And there is nothing I can say about Messi that hasn't already been said that I haven't already said personally and everybody else hasn't. So writing even 100 words about Messi is actually more difficult than it might seem to, to some someone that's not involved in the industry because what do you say? So I hate all of it, literally all of it, <laughs> from conceptualization to ranking to writing to the final product to the 
uh, end result in terms of what actually happens with regard to the response. Literally every single bit of it I hate. I go on a social media hiatus for 24 to 48 hours once it's once I hit publish. I just disappear. I can't be asked. I get death threats and shit over it. So like, actually- I, can't, I, re- I genuinely hate it for, for, for honest reasons. <laughs> do you actually Are you actually able to not look for 24 to 48 hours? Because I always feel like I'm going to do that. And then around hour 10, I'm like, I'll, I'll give it a look and just see real quick. And usually my uh, belief that I should not have looked is confirmed at that point. Yeah, I mean, I did used to struggle with it. I used to say I'd do it, and then I would do what you did, like uh-huh. hour ten. But it, it over the years, I have genuinely been able to just leave it behind. Nice. Um, I mean, I went camping last week. I had took a week off. I've been absolutely exhausted because I haven't had any, any time off at all for like six months. And I went camping, and I dropped my phone down the only toilet in the campsite by accident. Lovely. Or was it? Because I found myself <laughs> wondering if, in fact, it was accidentally on purpose <laughs> because I needed a reset. And so I I couldn't turn it on for 12 hours, uh, and it's actually fine. iPhone 10 technology, man. Brilliant. Um, I think you should probably uh, disinfect that thing. But yeah, otherwise, I'm glad it still works. Oh, no, for sure, for sure. But it does still work. But I uh, I got a break. I got the full 24 hours. And it's, it's amazing what it does for you when the conversation turns the way it does sometimes. All right, well, let's let's turn that conversation then since we've begun at the obvious place of the thing you least like writing about. Let's talk about a thing that you have enjoyed. Uh, since the restart, has there been a team that you find yourself most enjoying that is sort of appointment television for you for whatever reason? Uh, across the Across Europe, um, there's probably yeah there's probably one in one in each. I mean I support Granada and Granada have managed to qualify for Europe, which is just remarkable. So I've 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 made a habit of obviously watching all if not most of those games. Um, I've watched pretty much all of Real Madrid because I've been in awe of their mentality and their determination to grind through the kind of mini tournament structure and the way that they have overtaken and beaten Barcelona with that win streak, I found incredibly impressive on a mental level. Um, Over in Germany, I watched Gladbach and Leverkusen a lot, and I could not help but admire Bayern and think that they were maybe the perfect side. And in the Premier League, um, I've watched every game of Southampton's because I, I write I write a, a match day program for them or not at the moment because there's no match day programs but I write a website column for them as well so I have to stay up to date but they've been really engaging as a team mm. and as a project and as something moving forward under Ralph Hasenhuttle they've been Danny Ings's golden boot chase Nathan Redmond's recovering of form the defensive structure that he's managed to put in place and the way they're going and playing these big teams you know beating City be, you know uh, drawing with United mm. with the last gas win at Old Trafford. Southampton have been have been really they've drawn me in more than ever. I mean, I literally have to watch them, so it's a bit of a cop out, but I'm really enjoying that part of it. Daryl is pretty high on Southampton as well. I think he they are approximating uh, appointment television for him. The the thing for a while with them was they have a strong manager. That manager leaves. They bring in somebody else who then is pretty strong, and then he leaves. With Hasenhutl, do you expect that he is there for at least another couple seasons? Do you think he's more of a long-term appointment, or do you expect that when there is a sacking at a club a little bit further up the table that they'll come calling again? Well, I mean, Hasenhutl signed a new four-year contract like basically about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would imagine that he's been sold a certain vision and that they can they can act, they can action and realize that. And he's he's sticking around for it. He he does like where he works. He likes some other players. He feels like he's got a good situation um, at Southampton. He can build something. That said, you know he is a class manager and looking further up that table, um, perhaps not at the Liverpool Man City level, but. You don't even have to go down as far as maybe Man United. Um, and if things go pear-shaped for a third time under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, then they, they, they should absolutely look at Hasenhutl. I mean, they should look at Pochettino first, but they should look at Hasenhutl. Like, that should be happening. Tottenham should have appointed Hasenhutl instead of Jose Mourinho. Arsenal could have done it, but Arteta's been fine. Like that, He is at that level, no doubt about it. So that would be the worry, of course. But you can't control that, right? All you can do is, is, is do your best with... And you can't not appoint Hasenhutl because no. you're worried that he'll be nicked two years later. Um, you just have to make sure you get the next one right because that's what they didn't do from Pochettino through to... Uh, well, basically, you end up with like Claude Puel, Mauricio Pellegrino... Literally just appointed him because he sounded like Pochettino, I'm sure, in name. It did feel um, a little bit like that, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah, I think they had, it was Pochettino and then Kuman. Those would be the two that I was like, oh yeah, like, yeah. come in, do well, yeah. move on. And then from there, yeah, it didn't quite continue in that yeah. direction. I mean, yeah, so, so Kuman was great after, after Pochettino and then it went really bad. And then they completely defaulted on their principles, right? Because Kuman, Pochettino are of a certain type. Pellegrino was the total opposite. 
Claude Puel was very similar to Pellegrino and neither of them played relatively attractive football. Um, and uh, Mark Hughes was just a total, total panic. And they should never have given him the, the job full time. And that was the real reversal of principles there. That's where it started. I genuinely forgot and, that happened. Yeah. And Hasenhutl, <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. And Hasenhutl took them the right way again. So they just need to not panic and remember what has made them so successful and remember their identification of managers of a certain type is really strong. And you don't have to go the other way. You know, you don't have to like, hit the big Sam alarm uh, at a certain point because it, you can probably still get away with what you're doing, even if there's a little dip. But we'll see. How do you expect Southampton to be when the transfer market opens in England? Do you do you think they're going to reinforce? Do you think they're going to sort of bring in some players and really compete at a higher level, like with what they've been doing? Or do you expect that they all sort of stay as they are and attempt to weather the uh, the coming storm? Yeah, I think they're in a pretty strong position. I think they're only about four players away from challenging for the Europa League. Um, and I think they're going to lose Hoybier for sure. And he's going to go to either Tottenham or Everton. Um, Everton have obviously had this £25 million bid accepted. Uh, and we'll see what happens with that. Tottenham is still floating around. And I'm, I'm sure that Southampton would rather sell to Tottenham because they want to get Carl Walker-Peters involved uh, in a deal or they want to get Carl Walker-Peters on a permanent. And if you can give Spurs Hoybier, it obviously helps your chances, uh, whether that's like a direct or indirect swap deal with cash. And so Hoybier will leave. But Southampton have been fine without Hoybier for the last three weeks like Romeo has stepped in and played really well alongside JWP so there's no real concern there they're selling a player with a year left on his deal for 25 million that they don't actually need that much which is a bit a bit of a win hmm. and if they can pick up Kyle Walker-Peters there's heavy links to uh, Salisu the centre-back from Rayo Valladolid he's really good then you're just looking at probably a striker uh, because the others just don't score enough goals outside of Ings, uh, and probably may, maybe a centre mid, but Harrison Reed's coming back off loan, and maybe an attacking mid because Buffal will go, but Redmond and Gineppo are a really nice pair. So what I'm trying to say is they're not that far off here, mm-hmm. and uh, they could probably get away with signing just three players this summer, and I genuinely think that they would push for Europa League because they are in sync now. They look really good. And if you were Hoiberg, uh, Hoibierg, I, I can't approximate your pronunciation. You got those skills. Uh, would you rather be at Everton or would you rather be at Spurs? Because I, I think mean, the logical answer is Spurs, except that Jose is always at, at risk of infighting and falling out. Uh, and I'm not quite sure where we are on that ranking right now, but I'm wondering which of those you would uh, rather play for. <laughs> I mean, I would still go to Spurs because uh-huh. managers, as we know, do not last forever. But you can sign for a club for four years and you might see three managers. So yeah. Jose wouldn't Jose wouldn't put me or the prospect of falling out with Jose wouldn't put me off. What I am a bit surprised about is that Tottenham are even going for him in the first place. Because the kind of player that it strikes me as they need is, is, a, is a proper anchoring number six, um, like a Victor Wanyama, another one. And Hoybier is not that player. Like he's a he's a box to box number eight. He is defensively conscious. He is tenacious, aggressive, and he does win the ball a lot. But he is not a specific ball winner. So he's he's an all action up and down central midfielder who who can do sort of everything at a six to seven out of ten level. But he's not a specialist in any one area. To be truthful, in my head, I pretend he's better than he is because I want him to be better. But he's not. And Everton really need that player because they play straight four four two. And the current partnership of Sigurdsson and Andre Gomez has no defensive capacity or now whatsoever. And they could really use Hoybier in there. But for Spurs, I feel like Hoybier would just eat into Harry Wink's minutes without actually solving the problem they have. So that really confuses me. That said, that if I was Pierre, I would back myself to go to Tottenham, the bigger club. Uh, well, not historically, but the bigger club over the last 10 years or so and make an impact and force my way in. But um, yeah, for, it, it's clear that one is a better fit than the other. So let's say uh, Pierre, as you've called him, which is easier, uh, goes to Everton. Who is that number six you think Tottenham should be pursuing or should be taking a look at? Well, this is a tough market for sure. Um, and it depends on, obviously it all depends on what happens. I think the best player they could probably buy is Dennis Zachariah from Borussia Mönchengladbach, who can go box to box as well, but is a phenomenal smothering midfielder. Uh, has incredible athleticism, great defensive acumen, uh, has dropped in and played centre-back. I remember watching Gladbach versus Leipzig uh, earlier in the year and they dropped uh, dropped Zachariah into a a third centre-back role and had him man-marked Timo Werner and he kept up with him all game and just completely nullified him. It was a total cloak over Werner 
and just like feed wise, he kept up with Timo Werner the entire game, just threw a blanket over him. It was incredible, but Gladbach qualify for the Champions League. So how feasible that, that, that deal is, I don't know. Cheaper and easier to attain Ibrahim Sangare from Toulouse. Horrid season for them overall, but he still managed to impress. And he's a, he's a really good number six. I, I genuinely reckon Sangare would cost 15 million quid. I have a, uh, whereas I, have a, I think Zach... I have a genuine question for you at this point, Sam. Apologies for interrupting. Um, like for people who don't know, it, Sam isn't just sort of like spouting off with like names he's heard or people he's read, like some speculation about. Uh, when we were together in Germany, I, I think I said this before, but I will repeat it. I think you knew information about every single starter for uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, but then also their substitutes. And I think also for Köln, you knew pretty much the entire 11 and the entire bench. How do you know that much how many games do you watch sam like how are you able to keep up with so many names and so many leagues and so many teams well i'm very pale because i don't really go outside very much that checks and, out and uh, as a result of that i uh, i spend my time watching a lot of football um i'm very lucky that i get access to to some really incredible tools as well due to my due to my role uh, at bleach report and the, the the social profile that i have people want to give me access to tools and my company will, will, will obviously pay for stuff. So I have access to a, uh, something called Y Scout, which yeah. is literally just like on tap football, full video, full games, every, like every single one yep. back to like 2010 and they all get uploaded into there. It's very shady, but it works out quite nicely. Um, and I have advanced analytics tools at my disposal, like the like entire, uh, like foot, like transfer lab, style things that professional clubs pay thousands, tens of thousands of pounds a year for I get given access to. So I am fortunate that I get to digest and ingest all of this information at probably triple the speed that anybody else can. And I have access to it. So I am able to take a look around. And then obviously you can always, you, you always develop over the years, you develop the, the people you trust mm-hmm. um, and the people's, people whose opinion you really count on. And if you're not sure about a player, then you go and ask them and you think, what do you think? And they go, yeah. But also, like, I just watch loads of really obscure football. Like, I'm a Granada fan, so I've just watched all of Granada's games, which means I've seen Granada play via Dolid. I've seen them play Celta Vigo. Like, I just catch I catch a huge array of players by being like a weird football hipster who insists on watching, you know, Kai Havertz play versus Schalke and sit there and watch him for the entire time and things like that. It's just one of those things. Much, much more still to come from Sam Tai, who is the second tallest working person in football punditry. Apologies to Peter Crouch for that introduction. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Artifact. You have heard us talk about Artifact many, many times lately because they are great and they are, I'm going to say, immediate long-term sponsors with with their frequency of advertising. Uh, the folks at Hey Artifact create personal podcasts with the people in your life. We have used Artifact to talk about Daryl's treatment and diagnosis, to also talk about the history and origin of the show. Uh, we really enjoyed it because, as we've said previously, it's an opportunity to kind of sit down and answer questions from someone else. When we do explain our stories about our history or about Daryl's history, it tends to be a kind of back and forth where we end up talking about the same kind of stuff. So having a third person ask those questions gets into different areas that we might not otherwise cover. And I thought that was very interesting and I think can then sort of show you what you're going to get with an artifact, which is maybe different perspectives on a thing than you might have otherwise expected. Could it be about relationships or jobs or lives or histories or what have you uh, and best of all when you do want to go with your own artifact you can get $40 off by using the code TSS go to heyartifact.com use the code TSS when you're ready to make one of your own and you will get $40 off that first artifact order thank you very much to artifact for sponsoring this and many other total soccer show episodes now back to Sam Let's stick with Kai Havertz then. Why not? Um, where do you think Kai Havertz is playing uh, his football next season? Will he still be in the Bundesliga or do you think he'll be over in England? Well, it's always very difficult to say um, with these transfers, particularly in the coronavirus market. Um, but uh, this is information I'll just relay from my, my colleague, Dean Jones, who is, uh, has his ears to the ground on these kind of things more than me. Weirdly, despite his talent uh, and despite his standing, there is currently only one club actually in the running for Kai Havertz and it's Chelsea Mm -hmm. and we're starting to think he'll play he'll be a Chelsea player quite soon almost by virtue of no one else even bidding for him which is just a really strange scenario but it means it's because like only about five clubs have money right Mm -hmm. like because of the virus like there's only there's only about five clubs who can actually afford to spend any money at all Chelsea are one of them the transfer ban last summer means they've got loads of money that they would have spent last summer that they can just spend now so 
with the fact that they've add that to the fact that they've got so much, so many assets that they can sell off. There's so many players on those books that they can get rid of. They can actually build a pretty decent, like two to 300 million war chest if they want to. And Havertz is affordable. Now, given the fact that they've got about 150,000 attackers, it may not be necessary for them to sign him. But there's probably always the argument that actually Kai Havertz is a generational talent. He has Ballon d'Or potential, which I think he does. So why would you, why would you miss the chance to sign him at a point where the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona and Bayern Munich cannot afford to do it? Swoop in and do it, right? Yeah. So if I had to guess, I would say Chelsea. He doesn't want to go back and play for Leverkusen. He's made that pretty clear. Uh, which is always a sad story when you see a, a player raise through that youth academy and say, right, I've got to go now. If they had finished fourth, man, and they were only a game off, they just messed it up. If they'd have finished fourth, it'd be a different story. Mm-hmm. But he's not playing. He's not projected to play Champions League football uh, in 2020 and 2021. So for the good of his own career, he feels like he has to leave, which is fair enough. And as it stands, the only club that is anywhere close to signing him is Chelsea. So that's what I'd go with. But you never know what happens at the 11th hour. A couple follow-ups there, the first one being, so you mentioned Chelsea is one of the five clubs that will be able to spend money. Who are the other four you think will be out there uh, flexing those flexing those spending capabilities? Um, well, that was a, that was a ballpark figure that I came up with nope. just then. because it's going to be four, few, exactly. But, okay, um, well, <laughs> well, Man City are going to spend, uh-huh. and Man United have the capacity to spend. It's just about whether or not, whether or not, they can convince themselves whether or not they wish to and whether or not they fancy it. I feel like, I feel like you are doing a very good impression of Ed Woodward's brain right now, and I'm very much enjoying it. I mean, we could, but we might. I don't know. Maybe we will. Let's get a noodles partnership. That's the way to go here. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. They so can, City United Chelsea. They just, they just cannot figure out if they, can, if they want to spend or not. And it's, from what I can tell, from, from what I've heard, it is genuinely a case of like, from a PR perspective, how does it look if we break our transfer record during a coronavirus pandemic when everybody else is scratching around for cash? Everybody's enforcing wage reductions. Even Real Madrid have dropped the salaries of players and said we can't afford to make any signings. How does it look if we go and spend 100, 100 million on Jadon Sancho? Like, they're really worried about the image of the club and how they spend money during the summer's, uh, summer's window, which to me is bonkers. Like, guys, you've got the money. It's a weaker field take advantage this is competitive sport and you've got grounds to catch up on just do it but they're worried about that so i don't know but it's chelsea city and united in the premier league everybody else is probably going to be a bit more conservative and um i think psg can always spend to be fair like that i don't think that's ever going to be much of an issue for them so that would make it four i don't know anything about the uh, Serie A finances although did you see milan's budget was literally published on the front page of one of the major newspapers and i have had it confirmed from someone that it is spot on. There's literally the front page of a newspaper was Milan's transfer budget is 75 million euros. How does that get on the front page? Like who's, who's leaking that number? That's also, is it, was that the headline? That's a, that's a pretty straightforward headline. I'm surprised there's no puns in there. It's uh, it's just well, I mean, maybe there was, it was all Italian. I can't read it. Okay. <laughs> but I, I saw, You're a I saw, man, the, Sam, I don't know. I, I saw the big figure on the page and was yeah. like, how have they got that? And spoke to someone, they were like, yeah, to be fair, that is actually right. That's what we're working off. But I don't know who's done that. All right, then. But we would assume Chelsea will have a little bit more than that. Uh, as you mentioned, they are already strengthening in the attack. Uh, Hakim Zayesh coming in. Uh, who am I forgetting who they've also brought in for a, a large amount of money? Timo Werner. Timo Werner. Timo thank Werner. you, the aforementioned Timo Werner. Uh, linked with Kai Havertz. Why aren't they linked with more defenders and maybe another goalkeeper? Because that seems like the personnel that they desperately need but are not being consistently linked with yeah they've got a problem in goal haven't they yeah. and um it's a problem it's a schoolboy sized problem in kepper <laughs> and it's not going away anytime soon i don't think because Mm-mm. the cost of him was so outrageous they just can't at the moment they haven't been able to find anybody that they can pair up with for a decent deal you know i think if they ended up not playing kepper next season it's because he's, they've literally swallowed the cost of him and they've put him on the bench and they've bought someone else, which is I, I think should be that should be done. But if they can find a buy for him, you know they're going to be taking a massive hit on that 70-odd million fee. He's not going to get, you're not even going to get 40 million for Kepa, given the way he's played over the last two years, uh, which is a ridiculous reduction in, in price. His wages will probably be covered on the loan. It's, it's a mess. And they're going to have to come to a conclusion one way or the other. If, if I was them, I would buy Andre Onana from Ajax on, or maybe even like Nick Pope from Burnley. And I would put Kepper on the bench 
and see what happens because they can't carry on like this, man. They just can't. They cannot carry on uh, with the goalkeeping situation yep. they have. And they also can't carry on with the defensive situation overall that they have either. I mean, obviously, they, 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 they conceded a fair few against Liverpool last night and, and you don't want to judge them by that. But I'm just going to flick up the table now to look at the goals allowed because Chelsea are down there with 54 goals mm-hmm. against. They've conceded more goals than Brighton this season now uh, through 37 games you know it it's not that they're, they're five goals off Southampton who lost the game nine nil so defensively it has been a problem I don't really understand why he's just decided to leave Tomori to one side but they've got they've got us they need a center back and they need a left back don't they I mean that's that's just that's the way it is they 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 should I think they should be rivaling Man City for Nathan Ake particularly since he's he's homegrown club grown for them uh, but elsewhere, there are other options. Uh, Diego Carlos at Sevilla is is really good. Um, Merit Demerel, if Juventus can't find room for him, he is so good. I know he's just torn his ACL, but he, he's back again now. Taps over from Leverkusen has been really impressive. There are options out there. Left back is also not that tricky. You see the links to the 80 million Ben Chilwell deal. Mm-hmm. Like, guys, don't do not do that. Like, don't spend 80 million on Ben Chilwell. That's crazy. It's crazy stuff yeah um, i mean you know, know but he's english so uh make it 90 why not yeah but i mean the reason he's 80 is because he's english but mm-hmm. again you only have to go to ajax where you literally just bought ziesh and think like right yeah. talia fico how much will he cost 25 30 just buy him instead <laughs> alex tellers at porto um and again watching a lot of glad back i've been really impressed with their left wing back rami bensabaini so there's, there's all sorts of different options there are always loads of options out there outside the premier league it's about whether or not you want to take that plunge so it sounds and, like you're basically saying teams just need to go to ajax and leverkusen with a big wad of cash and be like all right how much for that one all right and how much for that one and then at the end you just bring back like three or four players Pretty much. I mean, ultimately, what have Liverpool done over the last few five years? They've just basically taken all of Southampton's best players. Yeah. And ultimately, Southampton are a team who have a very strong transfer strategy. They buy young and they buy foreign and they buy with huge upside. And then they buy them and they have them for two years and they and then they move on and it's fine. And Bayer Leverkusen are just Southampton but in German. Uh, historically, they're a much bigger club. But where they are right now in terms of the European pecking order Leverkusen scout extremely well they scout young they buy 18 19 20 21 year olds they buy from Portugal they buy from Brazil they buy from lower 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 down in Germany they develop for two years and they sell them on so like in the same way that Liverpool have had so much success just taking Southampton's players you can look at Ajax you can look at Leverkusen you look you can look at Gladbach you look at RB Salzburg it's the same thing they're all Southampton just in different languages right so just go to their teams and take their players (laughs) Uh, did you, you know, know that did you know that Southampton in German is Bayer Leverkusen? I didn't know that. I did write that down. And that will be probably in the show notes because that's an important lesson to learn. And these are the reasons why we have you on the show, Sam, so I can become a cultured sophisticate who says things like that in continental Europe. And then Germans who refuse to understand sarcasm look at me skeptically and say, no, that's, that's not what that means. I don't know why you're translating it that way. Uh, what, I, what I would also like to follow up with is uh, about Kepa himself. Um, I am not a Chelsea fan. I am not as well-versed when it comes to their goalkeeper and the plight there. Was this always a problem, do you think? Has it just been that he is so low on confidence under Frank Lampard that things are just not working out? Was this a panic buy in the moment? Like, What are the factors that you think play into the situation as it is currently? So I don't know. I don't. I can't speak for the the panic buy at the start because I didn't watch too much of him at Athletic Club Bilbao. Mm-hmm. They've actually been pretty horrid to watch for a few years now. Very very defensive and very very reductive. And if I've if I've got a hundred matches to pick from, Athletic are right at the bottom. Um, so sorry to uh, Athletic Club there. But Kepa came with a very high reputation. He was very heavily linked to Real Madrid one January, maybe eighteen months before, and they were seriously considering him. Uh, and he was all pegged to be the Spanish number one as well. So I could find his downfall or basically just what I've seen from him based on all of that reputation and prelude. I find it very strange because I had this argument a lot with Chelsea fans last season and they all called me biased and called me terrible, but it turns out I was right. Kepa has not been very good for two years, not just one year. Mm-hmm. I think he, I, I don't think he was great in the first year either. I did a, a consistent player rankings every week, top 10 in each position throughout the season. And Kepa barely ever made it into my top 10 goalkeepers 
on a performance basis on a weekly basis. And he, he did eventually got to like ninth by the end of the year. And Chelsea fans like, what? Kepa's kept all these clean sheets. Like Kepa hasn't. Sarri's, Sarri's possession system has kept these clean sheets. Mm-hmm. And he has always had, you know, chocolate wrists, weak hands. He's, he has no stature. He doesn't come for crosses. He's so passive. He's not commanding at all. He doesn't communicate. He's now developed a problem with his 1v1 technique, seemingly, and he's so easy to beat 1v1. He commits so damn early. So strikers have all the time in the world to just pick their spot. All of these problems are happening. He's saving, he's, he's conceding shots that he should save. I remember the Newcastle game in particular that he lost 1-0, where like Chelsea battered them, lost 1-0 in the last minute, and the ball just kind of went through Kepper as if he was like a ghost. So this is this is a problem that's, been compounded and been made more obvious this season but the roots were there last season they really were the only thing I think he had going for him was a really clean pass completion percentage last season which is not what you pay 72 million euros for that in is a goalkeeper a, that is a modern football statistic right there <laughs> the goalkeeper's <laughs> pass completion percentage is a fundamental factor uh, so we, we've talked a little bit about Kepa let's talk a little bit about David De Gea another goalkeeper who is uh, in the firing line, so to speak, uh, recently. And he t- seems to do this like every couple of years. There's this phase of him being bad at saving shots from distance. I have talked to lots of different people, including goalkeeping experts, about what the explanation for that could be. And the usual response, because it's happening via text message, is the shrug emoji. I am, I am so confused by this particular issue because it does seem to be a vulnerability for him. Do you have any idea either why he is susceptible on occasion to shots from distance or maybe from a broader perspective, do you have any idea where you would put David De Gea in that sort of top 10 goalkeeper ranking uh, currently? Oh man, this what this what now this I don't have an answer for. I, I know I know I know the internet of Kepa struggles, but De Gea just he perplexes me just as See? much as he perplexes it's you. It's so strange. I, I don't I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. And I'm really like, I'm so confused by it that I'm, I'm now at the point where I think United should not sell or loan out Dean Henderson next mm-hmm. season and start the season with David De Gea fine. But if he does do this, if he does do this again, then you need, you need to provide some element of competition to him because that, that might be what's missing. I know Romero is a pretty, uh, alert, safe pair of hands as the backup, but like, I don't think David De Gea really genuinely believes that Sergio Romero is ever no. going to take his spot. Mm. And I don't think Sergio Romero be... believes that he's going to take David De Gea's spot, which is an important no. pa- and, point there, yeah. And for the record, Sergio seems just fine with that. He sure does. <laughs> La- he sure back does. Backup goalkeeper. Backup goalkeeper. Well, third choice goalkeeper is the best job in the world. Rob Green's got it sorted. Uh, Scott Carson, sorted. Yep. But, um, but yeah, I, I think maybe there's a competition element there. With De Gea, I feel like there's been more downs than ups basically since the world cup 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I trace it back in my mind, I think that's basically where it started. And if we're now two years on and it's still more downs than ups, there's still more question marks. You've got to, it brings you to a tough decision. I really, I know he's on a huge wage, you know, he's, he's, he's well-respected and, and he's a very established and, and experienced player, but this is difficult. I sympathize with United on this one. So I think the best thing you can do is bring Henderson back and say, look, man, if he makes another mistake in the first 10 games, we will give you your shot. And maybe that spurs De Gea in a way that he hasn't been given uh, a reason to be spurred before. I don't know, but I, I'm continually perplexed by this too. So they may have the solution there to the David De Gea question in the form of Dean Henderson. They've already got him uh, on the books. The player I'm assuming you were referencing earlier when it comes to Manchester United considering breaking their transfer budget would be, or transfer record would be, Jaden Sancho. Is that correct? Yeah, huh? Uh, and how I have gone back and forth on this. How good do you think he would be for Manchester United, given that price tag? Do you think it is worth it for what he'll bring to the table or given what they have right now in that sort of front three as it is? I don't think there's a lot of depth there. So I think he definitely helps with that. Like, would you rather see them continue with a Rashford Martial Greenwood partnership? Or do you think bringing Jaden Sancho sort of automatically elevates their attacking performances? Yeah, I think he's basically knocking on the door of the elite tier of wingers. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are given the prospect of signing a player like that, you take it. I don't think you really think twice about it. If you have the funds, you do it. It's the same thing for Chelsea and Kai Havertz. They don't. They need Havertz way less than, than United need Sancho. But if you are given the opportunity to sign a player like that, at that age, of that stature, of that potential, 
just do it. Like football transfers aren't that hard sometimes. Just do it. And with United, it's a case for for Sancho of just of just signing him. Um, whatever the price is, hundred million, whatever, just do it. Like uh, he's obviously proved himself to be extremely productive with uh, hitting the twenty goal and twenty assist mark in all compositions this season, and that also you know, betrays a lot of consistency to be able to rack up 40 combined goal involvements over the course of the season. You've basically got to be playing well every week. Um, he's essentially the modern dream, isn't he? I mean, he's quick. He, he dribbles. He beats a man. He's smart. He picks out good passes. He interacts really well with his fullback or wingback and identifies and interprets space according to runs really well. And he's two-footed. Like he's he's basically unmarkable in the same way that Mason Greenwood is so hard to square up and stop because of his two feet. Sancho is the same. And you look at all that, and you just think, just sign the guy. And you know, Greenwood's going to be a number nine in two years. He's a striker. He's not a winger. I'm absolutely fine with them introducing him on the wing because the burden of playing up front as the nine for a club like United is heavy. And it can be one of the easiest ways to squash a player with such potential. So Greenwood filtering him on the wing, fine. But in two years, he's going to be your number nine. You're going to have Sancho on one wing, Rashford on the other. It's going to be awesome. This is Taylor jumping in one last time. I promise, final interruption from me, at least in terms of advertisements, not in terms of interrupting Sam. But I wanted to let you know that we have a returning sponsor. It's Fubo. We have been using that Fubo a lot because games are coming thick and fast. There are many of them to keep track of. Fubo makes it incredibly easy, especially with the family plan where you can have three people watch it once. You can DVR a game that has already been happening. If you're in the 80th minute and you get there in time, you hit record. You can then have that in your DVR. If you do miss the game entirely, it is worth noting it is available on demand for three days after the broadcast, or 72 hours, I should say. But your base plan is going to give you 30 hours of DVR if you upgrade to that family plan. I believe you're up to around 500 hours, which should cover lots of bases. Even if your tiny nephew, as I've mentioned previously, records, I think, every single basketball game that's happening, uh, unbeknownst to you, you will still have plenty of storage left over. As I've said, we've been using Fubo a lot recently. Uh, it helps us to keep track of things that are going on in the Premier League, because you can DVR everything there. Same thing for the Bundesliga. Many, many other leagues. We're going to have that quick break after the Premier League is over. We'll have some Champions League and some Europa League. Then we'll be right back to it with a very busy schedule. Uh, And with those leagues returning, you can stay updated on your favorite teams, on your favorite clubs, your favorite players by going to fubo.tv slash TSS and you can start your free seven-day trial. Uh, You will not regret it. That's fubo.tv slash TSS to start your free trial today. All right, so I'm feeling slightly optimistic as a Manchester United fan. Uh, I'm feeling less optimistic about their chances next season because Liverpool are quite good, and I'm expecting Man City to uh, spend to be quite good again. Uh, Let's talk about those two teams for a moment, starting with Man City. They're going to be in the Champions League. We know that now. The ban will not happen. Uh, Pep will very likely still be there, barring some sort of very strange occurrence. Pep Guardiola will still be at Man City. So what do you think they need to do with that said to challenge for that Premier League title and maybe make it further in Europe yeah Pep will be there yeah I say buying something absolutely crazy but Pep's Pep's going to be there he'll continue um and they get to keep all their players as well because the no no ban we saw like Kevin De Bruyne coming out being like well if I'm out of the Champions League for two years I am going to have to leave and um I don't know if, uh, if, if this if this is just snuck up on everybody else in the same way that it snuck up on me this week but Kevin De Bruyne is 29 years old do you believe that? He's I do 29. Not. I mean, it makes sense when you think about his career, but he still looks like he's 24 years old. So that's about where I put him. So, yes, that is surprising yeah, to me. Exactly. I mean, 24 is basically the age that he arrived at Man City. It's just it's all been a bit delayed. Yeah. So he's older than you think. And then you put his comments into perspective and you think, well, yeah, then he'd re- re-entering the Champions League age 31. Yep. He literally doesn't have time to mess around with this. But anyway, it's all good. Pep's there. De Bruyne stays. City are in the Champions League. And they're going to have some money to spend. I think they'll spend it. Um, I can understand why they're going for Ake. They need another left-sided centre-back because when Laporte got injured this year, it all started falling away. And the fact that Ake can play a bit left-back, the fact that he can play a bit of holding midfield, I appreciate he has. He actually hasn't played holding midfield, I think, since Rafa Benitez's Chelsea. So that was a long time ago, so bear with me on that. But he can do it. And he's homegrown. So I get it. I totally get those links and they need a left-sided centre-back. I think they could also do with a right one. You know, Kudavali, go big, go splash. You know, take take the one of the best three centre-backs in the world or four centre-backs in the world off the market and, and make yourself truly formidable. I think all of this money has to go into defence because they, they want a left-back as well. And there are a couple of options there. Uh, I'd like to see Teo Hernandez 
under Pep. That would be fun because he's been superb for Milan this season. Serious breakout season again. Um, I'm going to guess that the amount that would be required for him would would then, if they spent that, double Milan's budget from what we already know it to be? Uh, Yeah, probably. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you could get Teo for for 50 closer to 50 than 75 but it's a it's a big outlay it's like buying another benjamin mendy who at this point i think cannot cannot be trusted uh in this team uh, i think mendy since the injury i mean it's really easy to put it on the injury yeah. and he has lost uh, that explosive first step that allowed him to to surge into space create room for his low cross and those low crosses were being converted like every single game he was an assist he was an assist uh, machine wasn't he at one point and that's dried up. Mm-hmm. And what that has really brought to focus is that he actually doesn't really understand how to hold the defensive line, which is shocking. Yep. Shocking, considering he's made it this far into professional football. But how many goals have Man City conceded recently? And then they go to VAR and they show it and they check the line to see if anyone's offside. And they're not offside because Mendy's like wandering around in the corner, not looking at anything in particular. It happens all the time. And there's only so much so much you can take from that before you go this has got to change yeah that's and, my hesitation when you said like it's buying another benjamin mendy i was like i don't think that's a thing that man city will will definitely splash on if that was how you were marketing teo hernandez yeah teo is, is the attacking force that mendy mendy used to be and i think he's probably a little bit better defensively yeah. I, I think probably everyone else is as well um the other one is that Sevilla have been great this season and they've had regulon on loan from real madrid uh, the player that Solari brought into the Real Madrid eleven over Marcelo, and then Zidane kind of just like dished out on loan. And they've got Marcelo, they've got Phil Mendy, who's great. They've got three left backs, and if Regulon is expendable, like I'd love to see Regulon at Man City under Pep Guardiola. I think it'd be a really nice fit. So, I guess what I'm saying is that it all needs to go into the defence. And one other little thing as well that I've heard, I would not be surprised at this point if they exercise a buyback on Douglas Luiz, mm. whether or not that's to play him or to maybe sell him on again or whatever. But even if Villa stay up, I would not be surprised if Luis goes back after just one year. That is a, a vicious beast, that buyback clause. It can really come back to bite you. Uh, I, I'm guessing oh, Villa yeah. will be hoping that it does not in this case, but it very well could. Uh, yeah, Luis has been unbelievable post-lockdown. Yeah. Nine straight games, he's been his level has been absolutely... He's been Villa's best player, and he's been incredible. And that's why, that's why City are now looking at it and going, oh, okay, okay, we could do that. Yeah, we could do that. All right, so City may, uh, you know, continue to flex that financial muscle for Liverpool. Uh, I don't know how much they'll be spending. I don't know how much they need to spend. Do you think that they do need to freshen up a little bit? I would. I ask that mostly because though they win this league convincingly, I think some of their recent performances can be explained away a little bit by having won the title like with like four months to spare, basically. My dogs agree, if you can hear them off in the distance. <laughs> I can hear them. Uh, uh, I'm guessing somebody had the audacity to wander near our home. Uh, but with Liverpool, my only concern would be that the style that Jurgen Klopp likes can be a bit demanding. It could take a lot out of players. It requires a lot of, I think, mental fortitude. Do they need to bring in some new faces to kind of keep things fresh, keep things competitive? Or from what you understand, do you think the team is mostly bought in and mostly good to go for another season i mean i personally think they should they should try and freshen up the team and they should try and diversify the profile of the attack in any way that they can i said this last year and i suggested it might cost them i was wrong uh but i still i think it's i think it's still the case going into going into what would be you know two whole years without making a a major signing you know minamino is a player that that may well come good but we don't know. We haven't seen any blockbuster moves from Liverpool since the summer where they signed like Fabinho and, and Allison. So um, top teams, top teams have to change their look to stay ahead. You can't just do the same thing for three, four or five years and not expect basically everybody to come up with a formula to beat you with. And I really do feel as though towards the January, February, February patch, Pete teams worked out that if you if you play in a certain way against Liverpool um, and actually that formation in common tended to be 4-4-2 and just you look at what Atletico Madrid managed to do to them uh, quite a few teams managed to do that but just just didn't quite do it as well as Atletico and it was coming the, the fall off the drop off was coming and that's why you need you need a slightly different element to your attack Timo Werner actually I don't think would have fit what Liverpool are right now but I saw him as an attempt to change what they are, to give themselves an extra string to their bow, to diversify the profile of that attack. 
And I really do think that they, they should do something. Thiago Alcantara is a very interesting shout. Yeah. Because um, he's a beautiful footballer. My God, he's one of my favorites. I mean, if he comes to the Premier League, I will be so excited to watch him uh, live as well as just on a very uh, just on a weekly basis on TV, but just in the, in the stadium as well. I would jump at that chance. He would give them something they don't really have in central midfield. Werner would have been different. Uh, I think Klopp appreciates and understands and knows this, and he's trying to get a player to diversify his team. The problem he's running into is that uh, the man sitting above him, Michael Edwards, genius Michael Edwards, is basically telling him no. Uh, and I think there's a bit of a disagreement there between the manager and the uh, the front office as to whether or not as to what's needed and as to how much money is available. But do you think there is that risk of fatigue, though, the way we saw with, say, Pochettino at Spurs? Or do you think Klopp is just a different animal that the players not necessarily won't ever get tired or won't ever get tired of it, but at least are up for another season of, of Klopp ball if it means winning another title? Uh, it's, a t- it's a tough one because you, it's very difficult to bet against this Liverpool team and against Jurgen Klopp and against the talent that they have, right? It's very hard to sit here and be like, yeah, they're, gonna, they're really going to pay for this. Like, they're going to struggle because they're, they're not going to struggle. The problem they've got is that they're up against a team in, in Man City managed by Pep Guardiola, who, you know, before this season totaled 100 points and then beat them to the title by another point nearing that 100 mark. That's how good they are. So it's not necessarily about like, you know, are they going to, are they going to, are they going to struggle? No, they're not. They're still going to be excellent. But are they going to be excellent enough to beat a resurgent Manchester City who are capable of doing even more than Liverpool? That's the problem, isn't it? Like any other league, Liverpool will be fine. Mm. It's just the competition they've got in their face. And I'd be really worried for them if City go out and sign Koulibaly, a new left back and Ake or, or buy back mm-hmm. Douglas Louise and reinforce that squad, get Aguero back to fitness, make sure he doesn't miss as many chances as he did this season because that's been a, a massive problem for them as well. Just get back to the way they want to play. I'd be worried for Liverpool that City just just blitz past them again, to be honest with you, if they don't try and diversify their team in, in some ways. And of course, you can also just point to the fact that they've probably needed a, a backup left back for two years and they just sort of got away with not having one, I'd say, with with the combination of James Milner and Nico Williams stepping in at times and a few others like there are some there are some backup roles to be filled in this team no doubt um, and they seem to be ignoring those as well so we've talked a lot about the top of the table or teams nearer to the top half of the table uh, for the final uh, like round of questioning I wanted to go uh, much further south to a team not even playing in the Premier League yet they will be next season I wanted to ask you about Leeds uh, Leeds and West Brom confirmed for promotion uh, all do credit and respect to West Brom but I am very excited to talk Leeds for a moment uh, what should we be expecting from them uh, under Marcelo Bielsa in the Premier League uh, yeah I mean to, to pay West Brom their, their, their short amount of credit I mean they've managed to grind out you know this season and they've got promoted which is no it's no easy task, man. The championship is vicious. It is an absolutely horrendous league to get out of. And 83 points isn't that many by grand scheme in the top two, but they've done enough. And they, they didn't win any of their last four games and they still managed to get promoted. So well done. And they have one player in particular called Mateus Pereira, who is excellent and is well worth your attention when the time comes. But Leeds, Leeds, 93 points of 46 games. Bielsa ball back. Bielsa's so interesting. I mean, everybody should be tuned in to, to, to what he's going to be like next season. I personally believe that Bielsa versus the English Premier League media will be a clash, the likes of which has never been seen. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, he is going to be so pissed off yeah. with, the, with the way the Premier League media circus works. He's going to be like, what are you lot on about? Why are you talking about this? Why are you here? What are you doing? He's going to be totally perplexed by it. Um, in the same way that he was perplexed by the whole uh, Spygate with Derby mm-hmm. last season when he invited the media into his press room and showed them a detailed presentation of all of his documents, all of his plans and his scouting reports. He's brilliant. And Le- his Leeds team are, are superb as well. I must admit, I haven't seen loads of them this season because um, my focus has been on the on Europe's top five to six leagues. So the championship does slip by the wayside a little bit. But the Elsa teams are all very similar. And uh, having been heavily acquainted with his athletic club Bilbao and uh, uh, Marseille sides, you, you know what you're going to get from him. The, the high intensity and high pressure on and off the ball, uh, the, 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 
the high stance for the defensive line, the crunching tackles in the middle. They'll play beautiful football. Then they'll try and kill you off the ball to disrupt your rhythm. I mean, Guardiola calls Bielsa, you know, his mentor. And Guardiola considers himself a Bielsa disciple, as does Pochettino. So they're all cut from the very same cloth. It's like a managerial tree that comes off. So I think Guardiola plus Poch is probably what you're going to get from Bielsa. And it's very interesting to see him step up with his squad. Uh, the hard bit is already done for him because his methods are so obscure and demanding that when he steps into a club, very often it either clicks because everybody who's already there gets it or they don't and it doesn't work at all. And you look at his, uh, I'm just going to grab his uh, managerial career here. Lengthy, Chile, excellent. Uh, Athletic Club Bilbao, two years, but excellent. Marseille didn't go well. Lazio, he literally agreed to sign for like one day and then just changed his mind and resigned. Lille was a disaster. Yeah. Uh, and from that, Leeds has been a success again. So mm. it goes one of two ways. And it's the, the, the key period is always the first three months. And if the first three months go well, it will be fine. And he's through that. They're into the Premier League. And I'm super excited to see what they can offer. And I'm sure people will be looking at Leeds and going, well, can they do a Sheffield United? You know, are they that team? And the answer is yes. They are tactically perplexing and strange and new and interesting. And that always gets you quite far in your first season in the Premier League. It it takes professional football clubs in England's top tier an almost unfathomable, unfathomable, Jesus, can't even say it, amount of time to get to grips with any kind of tactical peculiar, peculiar, oh my God, it's completely going, peculiarity. (laughs) There we go. Unfathomable, unfathomable peculiarity. It takes them ages to catch up. Like when Leicester just counterattacked teams to death for six months and the teams kept playing high line against Jamie Vardy. And eventually they went, oh, maybe that's a bad idea. It took them so long to figure it out. Everyone in the pub's going, come on, guys. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I think that might pave the way for Leeds to have a really, really strong start to the season, particularly since they're so ingrained in their methods. Teams will struggle to adapt to them. And they've got a good core of a squad that will step up to the next level. Well, if and when that happens, we will be sure to have you back on to discuss it. I'm sure we'll have you back on to discuss many things prior to the start of the the next Premier League season, including the Champions League, which we did not get to touch on today, but I would like to talk to you about at a later date. But for now, Sam, I appreciate you taking all the time to talk Premier League with me today. Yeah, I think the moment I struggled to pronounce two words in two sentences was the time. I think you've called on the right time to call the time on this interview. (laughs) I took it as you just being a professional, and that's how you were demonstrating to me that you were ready for the interview to be over without actually saying so. (laughs) Subliminal messaging. Subliminal messaging. 